Well, today, uh, I have asked our assistant pastor, Ben, to uh, bring the message on this Palm Sunday. Uh, ben has, and his family, Katie and his kids, it's hard to believe they're, they're nearing six years with us. It's just, uh, just so hard to believe. Yeah, let's give Ben a hand. And uh, I hope that you all appropriately uh, appreciate Ben and the blessing that he is to our church. Uh, Ben is a very good preacher, and I know as a preacher what people often do. They always want to say, you know what, you've become a really good preacher, you know, contrasting it to what you used to be. And uh, I just want to go on record as saying I thought Ben was a good preacher six years ago. That's one of the reasons we hired him. And uh, Ben is a, a excellent preacher, and so I hope that you will open up your hearts and uh, receive what the Lord wants to share with us today uh, through Ben's ministry. So will you welcome him as he comes? Thanks, Brian, for those kind words. Um, Brian's uh, very, been very encouraging of my preaching over the years, and um, and I'm, I'm excited to preach. I'm especially excited to preach this morning because it is Palm Sunday. And uh, I just, Palm Sunday was always one of those things, you know, they hand out the palms at church, just livens up the atmosphere. And so I hope you're enjoying them. Um, you guys got your palms? Let's see those palms. Let's see them. Who, who got a palm? Yeah. All right. So these palms are great. You know, we had uh, some people blessing people with the palms um, earlier this morning. That's not what they're for. Um, but, uh, you know, we, they're there. And uh, I, I think they're, they're fun. They're for, they're for the festivity of the occasion. And they're great for tickling your neighbor. So, uh, you know, you can, you can <laughs> tickle your neighbor with them. Uh, well, before we get into the message, just one real quick thing. Uh, last time I was up here, I talked to you guys about small groups and uh, really encouraged you, challenged you uh, to, to get involved and, or even just to visit a, uh, a connect group here at our church. And I don't know if you've done that or not yet, but uh, it's still the beginning. Like some of the groups are going to have their first meeting this week. Um, and so I, I just want to encourage you to uh, con- connect with a connect group, um, try to visit one and see what they're like um, if you haven't done that yet. All right. Thanks, Adele. All right. So there is something that I would like more of in my life. It's five o'clock at the Yee household, and someone just got hit with a sword. Uh, they're coming to me crying, and uh, the person who, uh, who hit them is angry that they have to be a part of the conversation rather than being sympathetic that they just, you know, hurt their brother. Uh, it's time to clean up the toys outside, and there's an argument about who needs to bring the wagon into the garage. Uh, one, one person thinks it's the person who got the wagon out that should bring it back in, and the other person thinks it's the person who played with it the most who should really bring it back in. And, and so we... we <laughs> Peter, Peter's whining. He's, uh, he wants a cup of juice that he saw, and he's really hungry because he just didn't eat a good lunch, uh, which, you know, I have, to, I have to make a decision about this because if I give him the cup of juice, he's just going to guzzle the whole thing down, and then he's not going to eat a good dinner either. And so um, I say, no juice, Peter, and now he's really crying. Um, we sit down for dinner. We get closer to this thing that I want, but there is, Peter's climbing all over his seat. There's yelling. There's singing, both of which are not allowed at the dinner table. And I just want more of something in my life. I would like to have some peace. I would also like some quiet with that peace. 
I really believe, and I think I have at times experienced, that you can have peace with a lot of activity in your life. But I would like to have more peace in my life. Can you identify with that feeling, desire more peace? You know, maybe you don't have little kids, but maybe for you it's drama. People in your family are angry with each other. You know, they're at odds, they're holding grudges, there's not cooperation. Maybe you'd like to have more peace at work. You know, have you, can, you, can you identify with this? Have you ever just wished, I just would like to go to work, do a simple, straightforward job, get paid, and come home in peace? <laughs> have you ever felt that way? Oh, man. Maybe you'd like more peace with your health. Every month, there's something new you've got to deal with. And, uh, you know, the doctors don't seem to have firm answers. And you're just left with this, we'll, we'll just see how it goes till the next appointment. We want peace in our marriages, peace in our friendships, peace with our children, peace, peace with our grades at school. But sometimes we get to a place where we realize that everything is generally okay in our lives, but deep down in our souls, we just do not have peace. Do you ever get that feeling that, you know, just something is not right here in my life? Life doesn't feel right. Something's out of whack. And, and sometimes it can feel kind of strong, and you can get to this place where you're kind of feeling like, if this doesn't change, I don't know if I'm okay with this. Well, if you came to church today feeling unsettled in your soul and longing for peace, that is what we're going to talk about today, how to find peace, especially how to find spiritual depth of your soul peace. It's Palm Sunday, and believe it or not, this is what Palm Sunday is all about. Our passage this morning is Luke uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 28, and you can open a Bible. Um, We're going to have the verses uh, behind me on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it up there. Luke chapter uh, 19, starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, the owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came to a place near where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is to take you inside what it would have been like to be there on the original Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. You know, there's some really great lessons here, um, but to really understand them, you have to kind of understand what it was like to be there, what what it felt like to be there. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the view. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and he had to take this road that traveled over the Mount of Olives uh, to get to Jerusalem. And to give you a uh, frame of reference for this, the Mount of Olives was just essentially a hill. Um, if you live in, you know, some people think of it as a mountain, but, you know, if you're from Colorado or anywhere out west, 
this is a hill. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, for, if you're from Ohio, you'd probably look at this and say, wow, that's a mountain because um, it's so flat here. But so I'm just going to call it a hill. It's roughly a hill. So the Mount of Olives is a pretty sizable hill that was right next to the city of Jerusalem. And what was awesome is you could stand on the Mount of Olives and you just had this beautiful view looking out over the entire city and the surrounding countryside. This is what it would have looked like. Let's have that picture. So I'm I'm not sure how well you can see that um, on the screen there, but it is a wonderful view of the city. And to get to Jerusalem, you have to go over um, down the Mount of Olives. You kind of go down, and then you kind of, Jerusalem's on a hill too, so you kind of go up the hill to the gates of Jerusalem. And this is a painting from the 1800s, so it's not exactly what ancient Jerusalem would have felt like, but it's there to give you a feel. So you're riding down an incline and then up an incline to the gates, and the whole time, you're looking at the city. So this picture gives you a feel for the land, but it doesn't really give you a feel for what, it would have, what the atmosphere would have been like that day. If you were there looking out over Jerusalem that day, you would not have seen a barren countryside like we have in our picture. Instead, you would have seen covering every every part of the countryside, every patch of green grass, everything was totally covered with tents. And you see, it was covered with tents because this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For a Jewish person, this is the biggest feast of the year. And people would come from all over the region. They would come from miles and miles away just to celebrate the Festival of Unleavened Bread in Jerusalem. And, and Passover was part of this too. Passover was there. And they wanted to celebrate it in the city. And according, according to the law of Moses, they had to. You know, every Jewish man was required to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple to God. And men would have brought their sons. They would have brought their whole families. It would have been a family. It was, it was an eight-day festival. And the crowds would have covered the countryside in tents. All the inns would fill up. They, 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 they have no way, real way of estimating this, but... You know, estimates of how many people were there run from like 200,000 up into the millions. This was a huge deal. They had songs. They had special foods. There was sightseeing. They had these traditions they did. There were religious rituals. There was time hanging out with friends late into the night. It was the ultimate festival party lasting eight days. And so it is for this that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's made the long road trip, and before he heads into Jerusalem, he takes a stop at his friend's house. They live two miles east um, in the town of Bethany. It's Lazarus's house, and here's the big thing you need to know that everybody knows. A couple months ago, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's right, four days in the grave Raised back to life. Huge thing. Now you can imagine with all those crowds what this would have been like. You know, Jesus was already a big name. People knew about him. You know, he, supposedly this Jesus guy can heal people. But when word got out that he had raised somebody from the dead, he took it to a whole nother level. No one had ever heard of anything like that happening before. And here's the thing. People could go over to Bethany and they could talk to Mary. They could talk to Martha. They could talk to Lazarus and all of the family members. There were lots of eyewitnesses. And people are realizing this is incredible. 
Four days in the grave, lots of eyewitnesses. Word is spreading. And so the next day, Jesus and his disciples are ready to go to Jerusalem. And they start walking. Boom, the crowds are upon them. They're asking questions. Are you the rabbi who raised, who raised Lazarus from the dead? Is it, is it, is it him? What else has he done? The, the, the disciples would have said, yeah, this is the guy. He's done a lot of stuff, let me tell you. There, he, there, there were miracles. They would say, how did he raise Lazarus from the dead? Tell us about these other miracles. Tell us about him. Word is spreading fast. The rabbi Jesus is here. He's here. He's on the road from Bethany. He's coming to Jerusalem. And Jesus was getting closer to the Mount of Olives, and he gives his disciples an instruction that he wants them to fetch a baby donkey for him. He'd like to ride into Jerusalem on a baby donkey. And what's interesting here is that for much of Jesus' ministry, he, he, he does not do publicity stunts. stunts. He, he, he keeps a low profile. You know, when he heals somebody, he's like, hey guys, you know, could you keep this quiet? He doesn't draw attention to himself. Well, on this day, Jesus decides it is a day for a little bit of ceremony. He could walk into Jerusalem just fine. It's a walk down the hill. He could walk in just fine. But he wants to ride a donkey, a young little donkey. Now, it's customary for a king to ride into his home city after a big battle on his war horse and declare victory over his enemies. It was even customary for a king to come in at peacetime riding on a donkey. But Jesus does the unprecedented. He wants to ride on a baby donkey. And it puts Jesus closer to eye level with the crowds. He can kind of reach out and touch them as, he, he's, walk, as he's riding along. You know, he's not way up on a horse. It says something, doesn't it? Well, it means something for how Jesus wants to relate to the people, but it also says something about who he is. You see, there's this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that says that the Messiah will one day ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a baby donkey, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. And I want you to hold on to that because that's our first mention of peace. And today we're going to be talking about how to find peace. By riding a baby donkey, Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah from the prophecy. He's identifying himself as the one who proclaims peace. So Jesus engages in a bit of ceremony. Why? Because this is a big day for Jesus. This is the day that Jesus rides to his death. He's not going to die today, but he knows by riding into Jerusalem today, he is going to set off a chain of events that will lead to his brutal crucifixion. He's he's been preparing for this moment for months. The Gospels tell us that leading up to his death, his teaching got more challenging. It was more difficult for people to accept what he was saying, and he kept talking about his death. He kept saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, and people didn't understand what that meant. Well, the news around the countryside was clear. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were going to arrest Jesus if he ever taught again publicly. And so, you know, if anybody knew Jesus' whereabouts, they'd made a proclamation. If anybody knew where he was, they were required to tell the leaders in Jerusalem so that they could arrest him. And Jesus had kept a low profile for months. 
But today, he's coming out of hiding, and he's riding right into Jerusalem. He mounts the donkey and begins to ride. The rabbi is coming. He's here. He's riding into Jerusalem. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead. He's here. They start pulling these branches off the palm trees, and, and they're, the, they're getting into the excitement of the procession. There's, there's probably boys and girls running alongside him and, and, and waving you know, and clapping and dancing, and, and people were praising him. They started clapping and yelling. They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words are straight out of Psalm 118. It's part of a song that would have been sung at the festival, and it's all about the Messiah. Well, despite the fact that thousands of people are gathering around him and starting to create this ginormous procession of people into Jerusalem, Jesus' mind is elsewhere. This is a day for ceremony. But in his mind, it's a different sort of ceremony. Because he's riding to his death. He's riding into a city with a bunch of people, a bunch of leaders who have rejected him and are actively plotting his murder. He's riding to the cross where he knows that he will die, he will suffer for the entire world. The people in the past and the people in the future. He knows that he's riding and and he's going to save us from our sins. And all these people are around him and they're shouting and they're praising him as the king who will rule over him and who who will overthrow the Roman government. And they have no idea what is about to happen. And some Pharisees come up to him and they say, you need to tell these people to stop praising you and stop calling you the Messiah. And he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. And the crowds keep praising him, and the irony is they don't don't understand the incredible thing that is happening as a perfect man rides to his death for the whole world. But he rides, and he rides, and then he crests over the Mount of Olives, and he sees it. He sees the city of Jerusalem with all of its tents and all of its people, He he sees that both at the same time, the people who he will die for and the people who have rejected him. He sees sees them. They're one in the same group. And he sees them. And he loves these people so much. These people for whom he longs to see peace in their lives. Freedom from things that oppress them. He longs to care for them and lead them. But they would not have him. And he begins to weep. He's riding down the Mount of Olives, people praising him on the left and right. Thousands in front of him waiting for him, and he just can't stop crying. At some point, he pauses and he looks up at the city of Jerusalem. He looks around at the thousands of tents and people, and he says this How I wish! That today, you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize 
the time of God's coming to you. And then he keeps on writing. Jesus enters the city, it's getting late, and so he takes a quick look around, and then he heads back to his friend's house for the evening. That week was full of activity for Jesus, and over the course of that week, there were three major groups of people who he interacted with. Um, There were the crowds, there were the Pharisees, and there were the Sadducees. And I want to give you a bit of a feel for these groups of people. Uh, We've talked about the crowds. They were the people who would come in for the festival. Jewish people would come for their festival. And then we've got the Pharisees. A Pharisee rabbi was someone who loved tradition. They'd been doing faith. They'd been doing this religious thing for hundreds of years. And they felt like they had kind of figured out a pretty good way of doing it. And they they had many good practices and values that we actually inherit um, from the Pharisees. Um, It's not who they were. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a group of priests who were responsible for the temple sacrifice system. And they were also responsible to represent the Jews to the government. They they were basically the upper class of of the the Jewish Jerusalem world. And the problem was they'd figured out a way to manipulate the temple sacrifice system for their own financial gain. And they had power, and they used their power uh, for their own gain. Jesus had interacted with all these groups before, and as he rides down the Mount of Olives, weeping for these people, weeping for all of them, he see, we see that it's as if Jesus had a dream of a people of peace. It's as if he saw another option for these people, a, a way for them to receive the peace that he was offering, but they were rejecting it. It's, it's, he saw another option for the masses of people who were excited about Lazarus and excited about the miracles, but refused to offer him the full devotion of their lives. He saw another option for the tradition-bound Pharisees who had so much learning and good traditions, but did not have an openness in their heart to the things of God. He saw the Sadducees, the people in power, who could have used their power for good, but instead they were stuck in this selfishness And they were unwilling to submit their authority to God. And Jesus saw Jerusalem, whose name actually means city of peace, but had no peace. There was another way. And all that week, Jesus talked about it. He talked about it in the temple courts. And he spoke in such a way as to bring to the surface the issues, the problems for these different groups of people. But too few would receive him that week because their hearts were conditioned for something else and they could not see their time of visitation from God. Here's what they should have done and, we'll, and here's what we're going we're gonna to consider these things as an invitation from Jesus to receive the sort of peace that he wants to bring into our lives. The first thing we must be willing to do to find peace is we must be willing to trade our excitement and interest in Jesus for true devotion. Trade our excitement and interest in Jesus for true devotion. In our triumphal entry this morning, we see a lot of crowds that are pro-Jesus. They're excited about him. They're excited about the miracles. They're even calling him Messiah. But the Gospel of John, who also, that also tells the same story, of him entering Jerusalem, shows us a little bit of a different picture. And I want you to see what he says. Here's what he says. 
Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. You see, it's one thing to be excited about Jesus. It's another thing to be devoted to him. That week, Jesus had the opportunity to speak to large crowds about his message of salvation. And he invited people to believe in him and to receive him as the the new king to a new spiritual order that he was setting up. He invited people to give him the full devotion of their lives. But John tells us that there were so many who were excited that he was there, but they were unwilling to give him the full devotion of their hearts. They were unwilling to really believe in him as the king of a new spiritual order. And we all know that when the tide of popularity turned on Jesus, you know, they, and the leaders were calling for his crucifixion, the crowds would not stand up for him. In fact, many of them even joined in the calls for his crucifixion. And so there's an invitation for you and I to realize that it's not enough to be excited about Jesus It's not enough to be fans. It's not enough to be interested in him. Jesus is calling for devotion, full devotion. The pathway to peace is devotion, the full devotion of your heart. Consider today, have you traded your excitement and interest in Jesus for true devotion? Excitement and interest, that's a good thing. But have you traded it yet in for true devotion? The peace that Jesus brings is based on a relationship with himself. And the relationship doesn't exist without devotion. It doesn't stay intact without that. So trade your excitement and interest in Jesus for true devotion. The second thing we must be willing to do to find peace is we must be willing to expose our faith traditions by opening our hearts and being willing to be surprised by God. We must be willing to expose our faith traditions by opening our hearts and being willing to be surprised by God. The Pharisees had been reading the scriptures for a long time. They'd they'd been discussing it, generations of discussion, and they'd figured out what they essentially expected in 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 a coming Messiah. Very reasonable expectations. They expected the Messiah to be a conqueror king, a political Messiah who would become king, drive out this Roman government, drive out the Greeks, whoever was oppressing them. That was their expectation. But God had a surprise for them. It was a reasonable expectation they had, but they weren't ready for the surprise. When Jesus came on the scene, he began to challenge the long-held beliefs of the Pharisees. He affirmed some things, but then he challenged others. And Jesus is going to challenge you on some of your long-held beliefs. How are you going to respond? I've talked with so many people that believe that God is looking for and wanting people who act and talk a certain way. You know, it's, it, too many people think that God wants you to, be, to go to church and be a good person. It's a long-held belief for many, many people. Maybe that's your, your long-held belief. It's not true. 
What God really wants is the full devotion of your life. He wants you to look to him in faith for everything you need in life, including guidance and salvation. And when I've talked to people about this and kind of shared, this is kind of the way it works, it's been really interesting to see you know, them compare their go-to-church-be-a-good-person approach with this full devotion approach. And when, they, when I, we talk about this, their eyes kind of get wide as they have this realization. And I think what they're realizing is this is asking for a lot more. And it's true. It is asking for a lot more. But I think what they also realize, and it's really interesting to see the way they kind of talk about it, I think they realize it's a much better deal. It's hard for us to realize this sometimes because we're not God, but our good deeds, they are not very impressive to God. (laughs) You know, he sees into our hearts. He knows when we did something just so that we could be seen as a good person, or maybe we just did it because we wanted to feel good about ourselves. Uh, but, But he sees that. He sees our motives, and he sees our pure, you know, he sees it when we, we're truly doing something good, and we have pure motives. He sees, sees those two things too, but he sees a lot of other stuff too, and he can see right into our hearts. He knows what's going on there. It's just never going to be good enough to impress him, and the reason is because he's not a father who is looking for a child, a perfectly performing child. He is a father who's looking for a child who will receive his fatherly role in their life. So God may be challenging you today to release your grip on some long-held beliefs, some traditions. And it's going to be tough. It's always tough when we are challenged in this way to change our beliefs. But if we have an open heart, willing to be surprised by God, I think we'll be able to find that he's actually giving us something much better than we expected. The third thing we must be willing to do to find peace is we must be willing to take our control and our authority over our own lives and submit it to the true king. The Sadducees had so much power. And when Jesus came in and tossed their tables into the air and all the crowds loved him and they couldn't touch him, it challenged their authority. And they couldn't take it. And so they began... They rejected him. They began planning for his murder. We give them a hard time because they were the main drivers of, this, of his crucifixion. But here's the thing. You and I respond the same way. Every time we maintain that this is our lives and we should get to control it however we want, and we, we're saying, I have control over here. I have the authority here. I don't want another person coming in here and telling me how to live my life. Every time we do that, we're saying... I don't want a king. But Jesus is riding his donkey into Jerusalem and he's saying he's king over us whether we like it or not. And if we want to have peace, we need to accept his kingly role in our life. He's saying, you've had a lot of people over you in authority. I know. I know they ride big horses and they have sharp swords. But, but I'm not that sort of king. Come to me, will you? If you only knew what would make for peace in your life. I'm riding to my death for you, to rescue you from yourself. Would you receive me? Would you receive the peace that I want to bring into your life? 
Now is the time of your visitation. When you let him have control over your life, what you'll find is that he always had control to begin with. It's just now you're working with him rather than working against him. You know, there's also this, I hate to talk about this, but there's also this punishment in connection with rejecting Jesus. You know, this is a really unpopular thing to talk about, but Jesus said that there was a punishment coming for Jerusalem because they had rejected him. It's a prophecy that was fulfilled 40 years later when Vespasian uh, took his troops and entered into Jerusalem and just leveled it. Totally unpopular, but this is what Jesus said. And unfortunately, there's a, there's a punishment for us too when we reject Jesus. There's a punishment in this life, there's a punishment in the afterlife. You know, my kids don't understand it when, they, when I punish them. They think it's wrong, they think it's unfair. My, my father punished me, but I appreciate it now. I'm glad he punished me. And when we're 10,000 years old, we will understand and appreciate God's punishments right now. But it's hard to understand them, and I recognize that. But I want you to know, that's part of the, part of the situation here. Is there, are punish, there are punishments for our actions. You are longing for peace. He's saying that he has the peace that you are longing for. But you have to be more than excited. You have to be willing to give him the full devotion of your life. He's going to challenge you. He's going to surprise you. And you're going to have to lay down your rights to your life. He's asking for a lot. But it is a much better deal. And more importantly, you know in the depths of your heart, you know this is what you were made for. You know that the only way you're going to find peace in your life is this. You know your heart is telling you, you, I was made for this. I was made to be led by a caring father, the sort of father who rides to his death for his children, the sort of father who looks out over crowds that are rejecting him, children who are rejecting him, and weeps over them. I was made for this. I was made to be led. And it's the only way you'll find ultimate peace. Giving him the full devotion of your life, accepting his place as king in your life, receiving his death on the cross as the punishment for your sins. He rode into Jerusalem to pay the price for your sins so that you and he could be father and child again. That's what he wants. Would you say yes to his invitation? Today, if you are ready to say yes to Jesus' invitation of full devotion to him, I want, you, I want to lead you in a prayer of commitment to him. If you don't know what it's like to have this peace of God running through your life because you've accepted his rule in your life, I want you to pray this prayer along with me. I'll tell you, I prayed this prayer um, many, many years ago, and I have had peace in my life because of it. You know, there are still moments when, you know, the kids are going crazy or something's not going well at work. But I tell you, there is peace that undergirds my life. There's this undercurrent of peace, this foundation of peace in my life. And here's the best part. It never goes away. 
When I start feeling a little shaky, I go to him. I go to my loving father and his presence restores peace into my life. Unspeakable peace. Peace that I cannot talk about. If you want that peace, the Messiah who rode down a hill to his death for you is offering you that peace this morning. It would make him so happy if you would receive the peace that he's wanting to bring into your life. It's because he loves you so much. He loves you whether you reject him or not. He cares about you. Part of the deal here is that you have to be prepared to live differently. Yes, you'll sin after you become a Christian. You'll sin, but you need to be able to take on a new perspective towards your life where you are ready to do your best to avoid sinning. He's a loving father, and he's going to continue to forgive you for everything in the future, everything in the past. But you need, you need to be ready to truly follow him. So if you are ready, I want to encourage you to pray along with me. This is a simple prayer. It's all the stuff we just talked about. Um, so, so let's pray. If you want to receive Jesus today, I want you to pray along with me. Let's pray. God, I want you to be a part of my life. I recognize that I have been living my life apart from you and that I have sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe in your son Jesus. I believe that his death on the cross paid the punishment for my sins. I receive you today as the Lord of my life. I want to live my life in obedience to you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.